Three passages of scripture that we're going to go to, and then there are going to be brief nuggets and brief points that they're going to bring on the screen at the end of the sermon today. But when we get to this one passage in the 10th chapter, we're not going there now, the writer of Hebrews says, by a new and a living way. I just want that in your spirit for just a few minutes. This is a new and a living way. It is in contrast to the old way. It's a, in contrast to the old covenant. God considered that old covenant obsolete, folded it, completed it. It is finished, he said. And then he gave up the ghost. That has been fulfilled. It's a new and a living way. The danger of our generation is when we try to reach back into that old and pull it into the new, we find it competes with the principles of life that should be emerging from the new. So today we're going to be talking about a new and a living way. Father, I humble myself to you today, God, and I'm so stirred in my spirit to share with the people the things that I'm going to be sharing with today. And I just acknowledge that I'm, God, I'm a little bit nervous to the content that I'm going to be sharing because I think it's going to, it's go, it's going to combat some of the religious ideas that have been in our mind many times based upon other people's perspective perspectives of the scriptures versus the actual word of God itself. So help us today. Help us to have courage. Come on church, help us to have courage to let the word speak to us today, God, in the name of Jesus. We humble ourselves. All of God's children said, come on, amen and amen. Thanks for being here and being seated. Thank you so much for your reverence for the word. I want to start out very quickly one of the things that I have learned is that the epistles and the truths of the epistles are aided by certain of the shadows of the Old Testament. And if we're able to look into the shadows of the Old Testament, it helps us to unlock the truth that's contained in the writings of the epistles. And 1 Chronicles 21 is not necessarily a familiar story in the life of David unless you are a student of David's life. Uh, it's at the end of his life, but it really is a critical moment uh, in his kind of the, the culmination of his life. He almost, he really did stumble, but he certainly could have stumbled even further. It's in First Chronicles 21. Now, First Chronicles 21 is in comparison to Second Samuel uh, chapter 24. Now, it's the same narrative, but with a little bit different wording. Second Samuel says that it was God that moved David to do this. But First Chronicles said that it was Satan that moved David. So I can't answer that. I'm not going to try to figure that one exactly out today. But since we're going to be in First Chronicles, we're going to just take what the author says there. For the author says that it was Satan that moved David to number Israel. Now that seems like a small thing. What do you mean, Pastor, by numbering Israel? Num in a popula population census. That seems very trivial, doesn't it? That the king, King David, would one day decide that he wants to know how many armed men are prepared for war in his land. He called Joab, the commander of his army, and said, I want you to go from the northernmost part of Israel to the southernmost and the western and the eastern part, and I want you to go into every tribe, every city, every village, and I want you to gather for me all the men that are armed for war so that we can have a number. Now, Joab, even though Joab is not necessarily typically known as a righteous man in Scripture, Joab attempts to talk David out of it. Let's don't, let's don't do this. Why is he trying to talk him out of it? Because the law forbade it. 
The reason why the law forbade it is because God never intended Israel to be dependent upon the size of their nation to determine their strength. For their strength was not determined by the size of their army, but rather by the power of their God. Come on now, that's a good word right there. And so that was in the law that you were to not number Israel. David knows he's not to do this, but he does it anyhow. Doesn't sound like anybody that I know in this room right now today. So he knows not to do it, but he does it anyhow. He accumulates all the information. Joab returns, and then the Bible says, and David's heart smote him. You ever been there where you did what you knew not to do, and you did it anyway, and after it was done, conviction comes in. His heart smote him, it says. King James English, I love it. Smote his heart. And, and it gripped his heart in conviction, and he says this. It's in First Chronicles 21. You can kind of glean it down, but I'm going to take you to a particular verse in just a moment. So I'm just walking you through the story because it's setting the precipice upon what I want to share with you today very quickly, or the precedent. Um, and so, so David then says, I have sinned. And he begins to talk to God. Now, perhaps when it says he talks to God, I don't necessarily know what it means through the aid of a prophet. I don't think it was through the priest because I'll uh, elaborate upon that in just a moment. He's talking and he's communing with God. And he said, God, I've sinned. My heart is grieved over what I've done. And then he even asked God a question. Take away my sin. Now, that's an odd statement, and really the oddity of that statement is based upon your understanding of the life of David and the law. Again, it was something that he was forbidden to do. In essence, there was not really a sacrifice that had been outlined in the Mosaic law for such a trespass or transgression because it was strictly forbidden by the law. And it's almost, in essence, it's referencing, I believe, back to David's sin with Bathsheba. As odd as that may sound, as David's sin with adultery with Bathsheba under the Mosaic law, there was no sacrifice for adultery. You were to actually be taken out in stone. But you might remember, even before David repented, even before we have captured the words of Psalm 51, his repentant prayer, when he is confronted by Nathan the prophet, David is fearful that he will be slain because there's no sacrifice for that type of sin. And so therefore Nathan the prophet says these words, God has put away your sin mercifully. God's, God can do whatever he wants to do. And he doesn't have to ask you. Okay? And so God said through the prophet Nathan, I put away your sin. So now you leap it forward many years later. And David has now done something that he knew not to do, but he did it anyhow. And he knows the Mosaic law. There's no atonement or sacrifice. There's not a sin offering or a trespass offering because it was strictly forbidden by the law. Being forbidden by the law, there was no antidote. And he said, God, I want you to take it away. I want you to take it away. Well, judgment would come in this situation, and the prophet came to him, and he said, You're, there's going to be a suffrage that's going to be experienced by the nation because of your sin. And he gives him three choices that, that he can actually make, and ultimately David chooses not to fall into the hands of men, but rather to fall in the hands of God because he confesses with his own lips and said, God is merciful, but men are not. Right? God is merciful, but men are not. And this is the story where the angel of the Lord begins to go through the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding area, smiting Israel because of the sin of one man. And that, isn't that odd? I think up to 70,000 people died because of David's... How many was it? 70,000 men died because of David's transgression. David's heart is grieved, and he feels like he needs to offer a sacrifice to God 
and, but he feels we're limited in where he is. Now remember, let's, let's, re, let's, re, let's put this all together for just a minute. David is in the old city of Zion, and in the city he does have the Ark of the Covenant. But you don't sacrifice in front of the Ark. You sacrifice on the brazen altar, okay? He had pitched a tent for the Ark, and the Ark is in the city, Daryl. The Ark is there, but not the altar, and so David now is struggling because he feels like he needs to offer a sacrifice. Now, this is a very pivotal moment in the history of Israel because this is when the location of the actual temple in Jerusalem is actually chosen because he, the, 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 the prophet tells him to go to the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, which is just above David's palace. Having been there last February, we understand where David's palace was and where the Temple Mount is, and it was just a few hundred yards away. David was directed to go up there. Many people believe that that was the actual mountainside also that Abraham had offered up uh, his son Isaac there as well. And, and so David builds an altar and he offers sacrifice, but he doesn't know if this is really validated in the eyes of God because you're not supposed to offer sacrifice but in one place. The brazen altar, well, the brazen altar was at Gibeon. But David's afraid to go there because he's afraid that he's going to die. And so he offers sacrifice there, kind of just hoping, and God answers by fire. God answers by fire, and that kind of brings a measure of ease to his life. He knows that God has heard his petition, and in one degree has been merciful unto him. And it sets the stage again, another sermon, another thought altogether for the choosing of the location of the temple. However, it's the last, per, the last verse, I think, of that passage of Scripture that even after that sacrifice is accepted, we find something in David's heart that he's wanting. He wants to go to the tabernacle. And let's read that verse of Scripture there. I think it is. He wants to go to the tabernacle. The 29th verse tells us in 1 Chronicles 21 that the tabernacle is at Gibeon, okay? But David, it says, could not go before it to inquire of God because he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Now, so think for just a moment, and if you put all this together, and if you read the life of David, when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city, he left certain priests to kind of maintain the Ark. But the high priest and the daily function of their worship and the entity of worship was still with the tabernacle, which was at Gibeon. So, and if going back to some of my sermons in weeks gone by about the ephod, when David would inquire of the Lord with the ephod, does anybody remember that message? And the high priest had the ephod, and he inquired of God with David. David is wanting to go to the priest and he's wanting to, you know, just have that moment of just kind of solace and comfort and inquire of God. He's wanting the priest to pray with him. So he's here in the city of Zion. He's got the ark of the testimony and he's offered sacrifice on the hillside above his house. But the altar is over in Gibeon. That's where he wants to go. But he feels like he can't go because he's afraid God's going to kill him. So let's just put it in modern day terms. David wanted to go to church, but he felt so bad in his heart that he had sinned so deeply that he couldn't go because he had stumbled so bad and people had suffered because of his transgression that he couldn't get to God and he abode where he was. I think that's a powerful revelation that we should talk about because I don't believe David's the only person that's ever been in that plight 
where they have stumbled so deeply, fallen so poorly, fallen so badly that they feel alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But I come to tell you today, there is a God in heaven today that has made provision for you and I by the atoning death of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And that's why it's important what you know and what you believe. I think this situation with different depths certainly with different depths and different shades, plays out over and over and over again in the life of men and women. I've made this statement in times gone past, and I'll make it again. Let me tell you, of every person that has ever professed faith in Christ here at this church over the last 30 years was here today, we would not be in this building. We would be on the bypass because we would have easily overwhelmed and swallowed this building up and we would have had to make a move a long time ago. But many have come to faith in Christ and then they get pulled away for whatever reason from the activity of the church and it's my observation that sometimes when people fall prey to sin then they then feel unrighteous and they feel separate from the church and the work of the church and they want to know God in a more deeply, uh, more deeply, more intimately, but they feel, now they feel unrighteous and they feel condemned and now they sit at home. Sit at home, separated from the people group that loves them and wants them here, come on somebody, because we want to encourage them and build them up and strengthen them. So I think it is a plight at different shades and different depths. Does that make sense? Not exactly. Not exactly. We're not trying to carbon copy it. We're just trying to look through the lens of it and make application for just a moment. So I want to go back to the book of Hebrews for just a moment. And I want to pick up Hebrews chapter 10. I think they're going to put this on the screen with me for just a moment. It's chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Throughout the book of Hebrews, there are pivotal moments in the book when the author summarizes some of the things that he says. The eighth chapter, the first verse, says these words, this is the sum total. And so in essence, he's looking back to the last two to three chapters of information that he's given the people, and he says, and this is the sum total. Every now and then, that's good to have. Kind of which is just a step back and say, okay, but you've given me all of these things. What does it mean, generally speaking? So here's kind of a general speaking moment. Nineteenth verse having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by what? By the blood of Jesus. Now remember, he's writing to those that at one time put their trust in Judaism to produce salvation. Then through the preaching of the apostles, they've come to know Christ and they realize the insufficiency of Judaism. But now they're being tempted by the adversary and being tempted by Judaizers to actually revert back to this antiquated form of worship of God. And so the author is saying, therefore you should have boldness to enter what? Into the presence of God, the holiest. By what? By virtue of your own merit, by virtue of your own effort, by virtue of your own religious adherence to a strict code that nobody could keep? No. How do we enter into his presence? How do we know God? How do we commune with God by virtue of the by the blood of Jesus. Come on, the old song said there's power, power, wonder, working power in the blood. Come on, somebody. Enter in by the blood of Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So God provided remission of sin by what way? By the blood. Turn 20th verse real quickly. So this is now a new and a living way. It totally contrasts the old antiquated way that proved to be insufficient and could not make anybody perfect from their sin. Living way, but one of the dangers, 
rather than having the courage to say the old has been folded up and done away with and it is now a new and a living way. He's consecrated for us through the veil. He's using the shadow of the old to teach the principle of the new. That is to say his flesh through his death on the cross. 21st verse, we now have a high priest over the house of God. Come on, not an earthly tabernacle, not a temple in Jerusalem, not Mount Zion. I love the way he would later write in the 12th chapter. He said, but you've not come to Mount Zion, the one in Jerusalem. You've not come to a temple that can be built or a, a mountain that can be touched, but you've come to a heavenly tabernacle, a heavenly temple. Christ Jesus has passed into heaven. It's not over a physical house on the earth. He's in the presence of God. Come on, somebody having a high priest over the house of God, 22nd verse. Let us shrink away in unbelief. No, it's not what it says. Let us feel so condemned for our iniquity that we're afraid to approach God. Let us hide like David, afraid to leave our house because we're afraid God's going to kill us because of sin we knew not to do, but we did it anyhow. Oh, that's a good word right there. No, he said, but let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. You know why so many people's countenance is following them in the church? Because we don't have a full assurance of faith. If you get up every day and say, I have a full assurance of faith that I am accepted in the Lord, I am in the beloved of Christ God, hid me in Christ Jesus, and I am His. He purchased me. I've been redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, it'll change your countenance. Change your walk, put a smile on your face. Even in a decaying, destructive world like we live in today, you can still have joy unspeakable. The old song said in full of, come on somebody. Our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. And again, using the shadow of Judaism, and your body is washed with pure water. It's almost kind of a reflection of Romans 6 when Paul said the instruments that you used to sin with. You used to sin emotion of sin that was in your flesh. You used to do these things. Now I've been washed with pure water. Come on, somebody. So what do I do? I hold fast. Not I don't keep laboring to maintain it. I hold fast the profession of faith without wavering. Because he is. Even when I've been... Uh-oh. <laughs> I told you I'm going to come right at our religion today. Even my own. Even my own. Pastor Brown's. He is faithful, the promise. Even when I've been unfaithful, he's faithful. 24th verse. So let us, why do we need to come together for church like this? Because we need to consider one another and we need to provoke unto love and to good works. We need to encourage one another in love and we do believe in good works. We believe in, in a testimony of a life and a lifestyle that's been changed by God. And in the church, that's the place where you begin to conform to the image of Jesus. That's where we encourage one another to live what we would call right. It's probably a cliche. Sometimes it's probably uh, unspiritual or unscriptural. But, but what righteous living begins to evolve out of who we are in Christ. It begins to be a work of the Holy Spirit produced in our life. The fruit of the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit and not satisfying the craving desires of the flesh. So we consider one another and we provoke one another in love and good works and we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is so we don't hide like David afraid to go to the house of God because of our own failure but we come on now we don't forsake but we as the manner of some is but we exhort one another we encourage one another and we challenge one another amen come on that's the value of the church I'm telling you ain't no devil in hell keeping me away from the people of God 
Ain't no devil in hell keeping me in a mindset that says that I used to be, but I am now, and I used to. No, I am in Christ today, and that position in Christ gives me great hope and great courage today. I want to go back and reconsider a couple statements there. Y'all with me today? See, now one thing I hope that you're learning. We are a generation that is not very doctrinal. Do you understand what I mean by doctrinal? We have all the resources in our culture today that we ought to all be theologians. But we don't have time for that because we've got HGTV to watch. Or ESPN. Oh, now it's gotten real quiet in here. Hello? We ought to all be rooted and grounded in what we believe. But it takes study. It takes getting into the Word of God. And if you think that you can gain the full knowledge of how you need to walk in the grace of God through a 40-minute sermon on Sunday morning, you are sadly mistaken. I don't care how good the preaching is. I don't care who we bring in this pulpit. You're going to have to get in the Word. The spirit of the Bereans is going to have to rest upon you. You're going to have to be like Mary. You're going to have to sit at the feet of Jesus and say, Martha can be busy all she wants to be, but I'm going to sit at the feet of Jesus because I want his word. I want to be rooted and grounded. Colossians 1 and 23 says that if we are rooted and grounded, we're not moved away from the hope of his calling. And so I'd like then for just a moment of time to consider a statement that I made two weeks ago that I think would probably allow us to build upon it for a few minutes today and to clarify some issues. It is 11.35. My goodness. This is really good. I've got to expedite myself real quickly, though. I made this statement, and I know you've thought on it since then. One of the most difficult things that I see in the church is the issue of saved and unsaved. Saved, or can we be lost again after being saved? It's divided the body of Christ for centuries, and I, I'm not going to attempt to fix all that this today, right? I even omit some of the names that are associated with the doctrine because the doctrines oftentimes evolve from pastors or preachers or theologians of their era, and then as they teach a certain principle, it becomes a doctrinal belief, and we label everybody believes that way a particular person such as Calvinism. See, I don't even like to think of that because when I read the scriptures, I don't find John Calvin. I believe in John Wesley and powerful ministry but, and, and Methodism, but when I read the scriptures, I don't find Wesley in there anywhere. And so I tried to avoid those grouping together of such things. But, but there was a statement that I made that I want to go back and kind of, I want to just kind of pick this up for a minute because I think it's important that we really get this down in our hearts. I think it can really launch you into a greater walk with God than you've ever known before. And this is the statement that I made. I said, sin is not the issue. That's a hard statement. Not because I'm not trying to lessen the impact of sin. Please be careful. I understand that. I understand the depth of what sin... I understand that sin has a depth to it. I believe that. And you can go deeper into sin, right? I know there's some surface-level sin, and then there's heart sin. There's sins of omission and sins of commission. I understand it, and I, I, I struggle with sin just like everybody else because the desire to sin is still contained in my flesh. But I said this right here. I said, sin is not the issue. Unbelief is. I said, sin is not the issue because unbelief can be the thing that causes you to stumble. Okay? And I want to pick that up and bring some clarification to it, if I can, for just a moment. Here's a, let me just kind of just put this down. If one professes faith in Christ, 
and still has some measure of sin in their life, we often question whether or not they are in danger. And we use this term, and really, in all honesty, it's an unbiblical term. They're in danger of losing their salvation because of sin. That's what we say. Just being honest, I'm, just, I'm not preaching anything conclusively right now. I'm just telling you how the church that I've been brought up in and how we label things. My, 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 my problem with that issue is this. It creates the mindset It creates the mindset that even for a believer, God is counting your sins till you hit a magical number. Like in JoJo's office, JoJo has a foosball table for the kids. It's like a soccer field, right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. And you know, and you're on one side and on the other. Well, they keep count by, there's a little metal bar with some little rollers on it, and you move one to this side, two, three, four. We've taught people to a degree that God has the scorecard up there. And one, two, you're still good, you're saved. Third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven, magical number. Now you're out. I, I can't accept that, me personally. I just I don't I don't see that that's the way God through Christ expects me to live in this earth at rest and at peace with him. So when is the magical number then? So then we say things like this. I remember somebody arguing with me when I first became the pastor and it was on whether or not if you died with unrepentant sin in your heart. And so he said, okay, he used the analogy and, and, and he said, if, if, if I sinned during the course of the day and then I haven't repented of it, if I died, I'd go to hell. So I said, so if you're driving down the road and all of a sudden a car pulls out in front of you and you in your carnal nature say something that you didn't mean to say, it was an oops moment, like some of you have never done. That's <laughs> you have hypocrites in here today. And then that ac- it proved to be an accident and you died and you were taken to... You're taken into eternity. You tell me you'd be lost because you didn't have time to repent of it. That don't make sense either. Right? Surely there's a place where we arrive in Christ where we understand sin and the depth of sin and the danger of sin, but we're not resting our salvation upon our own effort, works, or quick responses. So because I was having this conversation with Shane this week, and I said, Shane, so here's what I'm going to do, okay? I'm going to put my order in in advance then. So when we pray, even as believers, we say this, God, forgive me of my sins. Who prays that prayer? I pray it all the time. I do. But I understand the principle behind it. But I do pray that, I pray that God, forgive me of my sins. We also teach people to say, forgive me of my sins that I did in the past. So we start thinking the Holy Spirit convicts us and we think of things that we used to and we've done. God, forgive me of that. That's a good thing to do. I'm not saying don't do that. It's a good thing. Present tense. So, uh, God, if I sin, the motion of sin is in my flesh, the activity of sin. God, then if I sin and the Holy Spirit convicts me of it, then I repent of it. But what if I forget? Or what if I miss one? What if I got distracted and I forgot that I did what I did and I missed it? Am I in danger of losing? Has God got the clipboard now? He's moved from the pegboard now to the clipboard. Is, is, Is that? That's what we've taught people. Let's just be honest, and people could never be at rest in their salvation. So I told Shane, I said, Shane, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to pray a bigger prayer than all of y'all then. I want a credit. (laughs) If that's the way it works, I want a credit. Not only did Jojo do I say, God, forgive me, so you've prayed for your old wicked past, and now you're praying for the present. Let's you and I yoke together, and let's get a credit. Come on. 
Every sin, so just that quickly, I'll just say it right now. God, every sin I'm ever going to commit in the motions of my flesh between now and the day that I die, I ask you to forgive me of it in Jesus' name, amen. I'm covered then by the way you taught me. It's real quiet in here because I've got the courage today to challenge you to go beyond the religion and to say this new and the living way, you can't go back to the old and pull the old into the new. David was trapped at his house when he was under the oppression of condemnation of sin and he felt like he needed to get to the altar to repent before God and he couldn't get there and he didn't know what to do. But you and I have the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross and when he finished the work, he sat down. It's a completed work. The sins of the past, the sins of the present and the sins of the future are covered by one sacrifice made by one man forever. I guess what I could say is get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, but now we see Jesus. We see him in his full power of redemption. And so what I was saying is, is that the issue is unbelief. I understand sin nature and the lack of time. I'll have to pick this up again maybe next week. I understand the difference between sin nature and the action of sin, and a lot of people don't. We're born into sin by reason of Adam's transgression. And that's why you can do all the good works as you progress in life from adolescence into your teenage years, into your young adult years, and you can come to church and you can go through the motion and you can be religious and you can be pious and still be lost because we're born with the nature of sin. So it's the sin nature. So then once I get saved, I get born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Come on, I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things pass away, and all things are now, come on, made new. Come on, I was born again. Isn't that right? Come on, by the power of the Holy Spirit. The nature of sin passed away. But the desire to sin... Where is it? Is it here or is it here? You're a triune being, soul, spirit, body, or flesh. The desire to sin is contained in your flesh. When I got saved, my flesh did not. And if I trained my flesh away for a lot of years and then I get saved, my flesh is like, let's go back. I like it the way it used to be, Right? And so immediately, the moment you get saved, the battle begins. The desire to serve God and to follow God and the desire to serve the flesh and the appetites of the flesh. Our teaching in the past is that it's in the soul that you make up your mind, right? That you're going to serve God and you're going to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And so in the context of sin and the depths of sin and the understanding of sin, and I understand it at, at certain levels. But I want to take just a moment for just a few minutes before I kind of culminate a, a couple of thoughts. I understand that sin is a very deceitful thing. That's the worst amen I've ever gotten in 11 years. Let me say that again. Sin is a very deceitful thing. Not now. I'm not talking about the nature of sin. I'm talking about the action of sin. It's deceitful. It's deceitful because it, we think that if we, if we just do this or do that, then it's not that big a deal. But it can become something that it can deceive you to the degree that your heart can go hard against God. Does that make sense? Let's go back and think about the statement that I made then. The statement that I made was I said, sin is not the issue. The hardening of your heart is the issue. 
sin becomes the tool that your heart can get hardened before God. And if your heart gets hardened before God, then you are perhaps at risk. Does that make sense today? Go to another passage. Come on. Is this okay today? Y'all stay with me. I'm not preaching tonight, so I'm all, you know, if you've got medicine and you've got to leave, then I'll just have to let you go. But I've got to finish a portion of this today. Go to Hebrews 3 for a minute. Let me validate what I'm talking about. Hebrews 3, and let's pick it up on the 12th verse here for just a moment of time if we can. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you what? An evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. So here's that warning. Remember, 13 warnings in the book of Hebrews that all deal with this common thing about departing from the living God. Take heed, brethren. So this is my warning. Remember what I'm supposed to do? Hebrews 10 says, We consider you and we provoke you to love and to good works. So here, the writer is warning us. Beware, lest you have an evil heart of unbelief. 13th verse. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be what? Be what? Be hardened through the deceitfulness of what? Of sin. Through sin's deceitfulness. So here's this warning by the writer, and this is something that we have the right and the responsibility to teach us, that lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. 14th verse. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Perhaps that's the tipping point on the 14th verse. We've taught people this right here. We've taught people, okay, make sure you maintain good works until the very end, lest you become unsaved, another unbiblical term in that sense towards the believer. But here the writer is not even referring back to works, but he's referring to your what? To your faith, which is your confidence. Your confidence. What sin does, sin is like cholesterol in your artery. It is slowly squeezing the life stream off. Squeezing it off until if you're not careful, if you continue in the motion of sin, you can eventually arrive at a place where you have unbelief. Unbelief, what is the unbelief then, Pastor? Unbelief says, unbelief is this. I can no longer be saved. I am no longer saved. The blood of Jesus is not sufficient. There's some other way. It's my effort, my mechanism, whatever application is. It's when I no longer believe that Jesus' blood was the atoning sacrifice that God demanded. And once it was applied, one man offered one sacrifice for sin forever. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so therefore today, I'm going to hold fast my confidence. When I'm doing the right thing, what we label the right thing in the church, and I've got righteous acts and deeds, I'm going to hold my confidence. It's not me. It's not Lee Brown. It's not my effort. It's not my discipline. It's not my going to church. It's not my giving in the offering. It's not my study. It's not my prayer time. It's nothing. And when I fail, when I stumble, when I trip up, when the motions of sins contained in my flesh, and I know to do good, but I do not do it, and I fail, and I sin, what? is my confidence that Jesus' blood was sufficient for my sin, past, present, and future. Glory to God. I hold fast my confidence where? Unto the end. And I just believe that if we would learn to live life with that in our spirit, then the people that are like David, that are trapped 
They want to be a part of the church, but they feel like they've stumbled so far, and we have made them feel terminology unsaved. Let me tell you, as I prepare to close in just a moment, let me tell you this right here. Here's what I've learned that I've seen hypocrisy in the church about this saved or unsaved thing, about if you were saved before and you say we call it resaved. Where is that? Where, where, where is this resaved theology? Where's that coming from? Here's what I've learned. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to use people's own profession. I've pastored for 18 years now, and here's what I've learned. Okay, they see your child, your child gets saved in JoJo's youth group. And then three out of ten continue in the church, seven out of ten, studies show, that are in our Assemblies of God youth. Did y'all know that? Seven out of ten get pulled into a lifestyle of the world. Can I say that respectfully? Here's what you say about their kid. If they die, they're going straight to a devil's hell. But unholy, unrighteous, ungodly. But if it's your child, if it's your child, I know my baby's saved. Oh, I remember, I remember. I was there at church camp when the Holy Spirit came upon them. They're just backslidden right now, but I know they are still saved and they're in the church. Well, which is it? Which is it? It's either saved or unsaved in the sense I'm either born again and I'm in the kingdom of God or I'm not. Right? So you've got to quit judging the motion of sin in my flesh and try to determine whether or not I'm saved because you don't know what's going on in my heart. And you say, well, oh, well, 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 Pastor Brown, no, no, no. Well, wait, wait just a minute. Let me put the analogy real quickly. You say, well, that person can't keep coming to the altar and repenting and going back and coming back and coming back. Time, God's getting tired. But tell you, God doesn't get tired. He doesn't get tired. You say, well, Pastor Brown, no, that's unspiritual. Wait a minute. Consider this. Peter asked Jesus a question. If my brother sins against me seven times in a day and I get tired about the sixth or seventh time, what am I supposed to do when he comes the eighth time? Tell him, enough is enough, bro. I'm cutting you off. He said, no, seven times 70. 490 times. So I'm telling you, if you keep stumbling and you keep repenting, then keep repenting. Trust the Lord. Confess before the Lord. And believe God that a change is being worked in your life. Glory to God. If it's seven times, a hundred times, or 490 times, God loves you today. He loves you. You say, is he just? He's already judged you on the cross of Calvary. You were found lacking. He put your sin on the cross, and today he loves you with an eternal love. Come to the Father in full expectation that you will in no wise be turned away. No wise be turned away. We close with these first few verses, these last few verses. Look at this real quickly. Nuggets. Drop these in the spirit. Are you with me, Daryl? You're with me today. Come and closing today. Let me just drop these in your spirit. I want you to know these things. I just believe it will give you a confidence that you'll hold on to. Come on, somebody. You'll hold on to. Come on. I said you will hold on to. Where do you hold it? In your effort, your works? No, I hold it in my heart. Heart. said, so, Pastor, how was I saved? How was I saved in my heart by faith? I believed. I confessed in Christ. I hold that confidence. Even when I stumble like David, I hold my confidence to the very end. What is my confidence? That I'm now good enough? Or I'm not? No, my confidence is that Jesus' blood was sufficient. Jesus' blood. Get that in your spirit. His 
blood. Let me put some of these scriptures, nuggets, nuggets. We're going to go through them quickly, extracted from the book of Hebrews. I just want you to know real quickly, Christ is not in a building, a tabernacle, or a temple that you have to fly across the Atlantic Ocean and then you have to cross the Kidron Valley and go from the Mount of Olives unto the city of Jerusalem and to Mount Zion and where there's a temple. There's not a temple. There's a dome of the rock. There's no building. There's no tabernacle. He's in heaven today. Come on, somebody. He has entered into heaven and he's in the presence of God for one purpose. He's a mediator between God and man today. Come on, I'm telling you, the marks of the covenant are still in his body today. Today for you and I. You and I are in covenant with him today with God through the person of Jesus Christ. He appears in the presence of God for us. Number two, let me just give you this. His sacrifice, I've been saying it from the minute I began the sermon, his sacrifice was sufficient. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. When David sinned, when David sinned, he felt like he had to offer an offering. He sinned. And he felt like, I gotta get, I gotta get for sin. Did you know the word remission right there is the same Greek word later translated forgiven and also pardoned. Do you know what it means to be pardoned? That means you're released. Come on. God has released you. How come you are not smiling at that? Are we so religious we still want to feel guilty? Is that what it is? I think that's where we're at. I think we've accepted it so long that we can't live with ourselves unless we feel some measure of guilt. You know what we've done in the church? We want your grief to equate to what we believe is the depth of your sin. Oh, let me just go, Rival. I got to touch it. I didn't mean to. Let me, let, let me, we want your grief to be as deep as what we believe the depth of your sin. And so if you don't cry long enough, if you don't beat your chest long enough and pound the altar long enough, then we don't believe that you're justified. Justification is by faith. I've seen a lot of people shed tears and there was no movement in their heart before God. It's by faith. So there's no more offering for sin. I'm going to omit part of that and pick it up at a later date and time. Then it says here, look at this real quickly. At the end of the world, people say, well, we're in the end time. Well, the writer 2,000 years ago said it was at the end of the world. Hath appeared to put away to do what with sin, to do what away, to do what with sin. Remember what David wanted God to do? Wait, wait, wait. Put, look, look, it's right there. Can y'all not see it? Put it away. If he put it away, why do you keep bringing it up? If he put it away, then quit bringing it up before God. Come on, somebody. By the say, he put away your sin. Look at the next one, number four, Hebrews. Or number five, chapter 8, verse 12. I think it is, the next one. Look at this. I will be merciful to your iniquities and their sins and their iniquities. I will occasionally remind them of to hold them in accordance to a strict set of laws so they can remember what it was like in the grief that they had in their heart over the sorrow that they experienced because of the consequences of their sin. That's not what it said. God said, your sin and your iniquity... I will remember it no more. I will remember it no more. That's a powerful word for somebody here today because you give up every day and you feel like you are the insufficient Christian. You're the half Christian because you got this label and that label and the church has called you this and that. And God said, I, I don't even remember. I don't even know what you're talking about. Have you ever had that moment? I've had people accuse me as a pastor and I can't remember. 
I can't remember what that is. I, can, I don't remember. And I have a good memory. Really, I have a really good memory. But there's occasional things I can't remember. And God said, I, so you're up there begging God because you want to feel better about something that happened and you've already repented of and confessed to the Lord and you're still over and over and over wallowing in it, wallowing in it, wallowing in it. And God said, I can't remember because I done put it away. Oh, my God, I'm preaching so much better than y'all are shouting here today. It's life. It will revolutionize your life. Let me just tell you real quickly. God wants you to know this through the person of Jesus. He was tempted just like you and I are. How many say there are temptations in my flesh? I face temptation every day in my mind and in my flesh. I do, don't you? Are we so, un, you know, so holy say, well, not me. Not me. I, I don't know. I face temptation in my flesh. And you know what I need? I need a helper. I need somebody that can relate and somebody that can strengthen me. Hebrews 2 and 18, read this. These are just nuggets, quickly. He was tempted like you are. And so the word secure there in the Greek means to help you. So he can help you. With what you're dealing with in your flesh, God can help you. Come on, God can help you. Think, well, I don't, God can help you. And dealing with an addiction, God can help you. Come on, I'm struggling with this area right here. We could call out sins of the flesh. We could call out sins of omission. We could call out sins of commission. Let's just label it as sin. Whatever you're struggling with, he can help you. He was tempted like you are. Yet without sin, we'll bring that up in a moment. But we'll bring it up now. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 15. We're reading this, closing. These are just nuggets, nuggets from, extracted from the book of Hebrews. Our high priest is touched. Read it from the, flip the text. T.D. Jake said, flip it. Our high priest is touched. That means he's moved by what you're going through right now. You know, there are some things that we deal with that we don't feel like we can tell anybody because we know how you'll label us. Now, I know what goes on. We all have different thoughts and imaginations and things in our minds, but we don't tell everybody those because I know if I told you, then you would never see me the same again. <laughs> Come on. Oh, now, maybe the women folk don't know what I'm talking about, but every man in here. Hello? You know what I'm talking about right here. So, but, so I don't tell everybody, but I do tell him because he's touched by the feeling of my infirmity. No matter what I'm going through, he was tempted like I am, yet he was without sin, so 16th verse, so therefore I can come boldly to him and what will happen in my life? I will obtain what? Judgment? What will happen? I'll obtain judgment. The church is good about passing out judgment. We're good at judging everybody except for ourselves. I will obtain mercy. I'll obtain that pardon. God says, I will have put it away. I'll put it away. Just like he did with David, I'll put it away. The law didn't allow it. God said, I put it away. I'm bigger than the law. God put it away. He obtained mercy, and then look what you said. Look what you can find. You can find. Go back, back 19th verse, or back, back to that verse. Go back it up. You'll find what? Grace. To do what? To help. I mean, no, grace helps us. Grace. I'm strengthened by grace. I live in grace. Paul said, by grace, I am what I am. Come on. Pastor, what are you talking about? Hebrews 10 and 20. Here's what I'm talking about. This is a new, what is this? Don't try to make it measure up to the past. It's a new and a living way. 
this atoning blood of Jesus Christ was greater than anything the Judaizers could present to them about approaching God. God forbid that we reach into the past and try to pull the precepts and principles in such a way that we co-mingle the two. Learn from the past, learn from the shadow of it, but don't try to live in it because you're found lacking if you do. It's a new and a living way. Come on, this is the new and a living way. It's a way of faith. So what do I want you to not do? Look at this, two last verses, and then we're closed fully and completely today, right here. Don't draw back in unbelief. Don't shrink back in unbelief. Don't say, well, I stumbled, and now I can't find His grace. Yes, you can. There's an open heaven. There's an open heaven. He's compelling you. What did He say? Come boldly. Come boldly into the throne room of grace, and you'll obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So don't draw back, Hebrews 10, 39. Hebrews 10 and 22 says, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. David was afraid the sword of God would find him for his sin, and so therefore he felt like he could not approach God. He didn't feel as if he could go to the tabernacle or to the altar. He needed mercy and grace. Let me tell you what you have today. You have a new and a living way. You do. God is gracious, merciful. He's put away your sin in Christ Jesus. What? I'm telling you, he has put away your sin in Christ Jesus. He's put it away. One sacrifice for sin forever. David desired to worship. He desired to draw near to God. He desired to inquire of God, but fear of judgment kept him from it. Fear of judgment. I want you to know today that you and I can draw near with a full assurance of faith, and we can inquire of God, and we can ask his help. We can just fall before him in prayer and communion. We don't have to go to a temple, a tabernacle. We don't have to take the destiny trip to Israel to go to because Christ is in heaven. God's given us the gift of prayer to commune with him. And wherever I'm at, I can just simply come boldly into his presence, confident in what he did at the cross. My heart is humble, broken, desire to do the right thing, but when I've stumbled, when I've fallen, what is it that lifts me again? The recognition that my confidence is in Him, not in me in the first place. Our heads are bowed, our eyes closed this morning. And I'm sure I've preached a long time and I've probably wore some of you away today, but I probably challenged the theology and some of you are probably not going to get this right away and it may take some study, some pondering and some contemplating because we have trained our religious belief so hard and so strong in one way that when we actually look at it through the lens of what the author is saying, this is a new and a living way. Don't do what has been done, but accept what has been done through Jesus Christ, His shed blood on the cross of Calvary. Your faith must be in Him today, not in your efforts, not in whether you got it right or whether you got it wrong, but your faith is in Jesus today, completely, wholly in Christ, in Christ not in your effort, not in your religion, not even in the motion of sin that's in your flesh. That's, that's, it's what Jesus did on the cross. That's your affection today. That's where we turn. He's compelling us. He's compelling you. If you're dealing with something in your life today, He's compelling you. He's compelling you in the name of the Lord. He's compelling you to come, to come boldly into the throne room of grace.
to approach the Lord, you'll find mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Pastor, if I do it now and, and I get out in the car, you can approach the Lord in prayer, in faith. At any moment, at any time, by the venue of prayer, you're welcomed in the presence of God because of Jesus' blood. Hold fast to that profession. Don't let anything, anybody, or anyone rob you of that profession that Christ compels you to come to Him by virtue of His blood. He will help you. I just brought this sermon to a close because I feel like there are people that need help today. Help. You need His help today. Would you be honest with me and say, Pastor, I'm going to be honest with you. The areas of my life, anything at all, I need His help today. I, 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 I just got areas. I need the help of God today in Christ. Help. If that's you, quickly slip your hand up. I want to see that today. Others, thank you. Need His help. Come on. But now be honest with me. You put that hand back down. How many of you have ever said, but there are times I felt like I couldn't petition God because I didn't feel like I was walking righteously enough or I wasn't walking according to a certain standard or I wasn't doing this or doing that and I didn't feel like I could come to Him. If that's you, raise your hand today, quickly today. Boy, I see a lot of hands going up. Thank you. How many know the author, not Pastor Brown, but the author said, if you'll come in humility before the Lord, He will in no wise turn you away. No wise. His blood is sufficient. Would y'all stand up today? Would y'all do something with me? It's so important today. This is so important. So important today. And I, I'm going to look at the time real quickly today, and I know it's 12.07. I've probably gone a few minutes past when I would normally preach. But this, this means a lot to me personally because I hate as a pastor seeing people in the church live in grief and sorrow and condemnation all their lives and never arrive at the place where they realize that they are forgiven in Christ and they have the peace of God in their heart. The peace of God in their heart. I, I, I struggle with that. You're reminding God of things He's put away. Come on. You, you're, you're going back, re-repenting over the things that you did a long time ago because you still live in the condemnation of it because you're not believing that God put it away. You know what that is? That's unbelief. Put it away. You are accepted in Christ. You are. You are today. I'm telling you, it will liberate your countenance when you realize it's not your effort at any level. It's what He did at the cross. It's your faith. It's your faith. It's your faith. Now, I'm not saying there won't be good works. Of course there will be good works. We encourage you. It's what it said. We provoke you to love and good works. We want and we believe and we value and so does God. But your merit is not based upon your effort. It's based upon what he did at the cross of Calvary. And if only we can see that. So if you raised your hand today, and even if you did, I want to ask you, the church, to do something with me in closing today. Now, I know in a moment you're going to leave. You're going to go out that door right there. You're going to go out that door. And you're going to, take, and you're going to talk about this sermon. And some of you are going to say, Boy, that was right on, Pastor Brown. He hit it right there. Others of you go, mm, I don't know. He's on that new edge, you know. I don't know. I don't know. you got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But the exhortation is don't draw back, but draw near. I think that, I think that just by the action of coming to the front for just a brief closing prayer is saying something to us today.
That's what it's saying. It's saying, I understand I can draw near to him. David was trapped. He was trapped in his house. I can't go here and I can't go there because I'm afraid of the sword of God. But by you coming forward today, what you're saying is, God, I realize today, come on, you've accepted me in the person of your son, Jesus. My sins and iniquities, you remember no more. You remember no more. So I want to ask, not just those that raise their hand, I want to ask everybody for just a few moments, a closing prayer. That's all we're going to pray, a closing prayer today. And it's going to apply to every person, not just those that raised their hand, but those that didn't. But by stepping and coming to the front, that little motion, that little activity, what you're saying is, Pastor, I get it. I get it just a little bit. Say, I get it. I'm drawn near to the presence of God by virtue of the blood of Jesus. And I realized that I can approach God. I can come boldly to the throne room of grace. So I'm going to ask you to, as we close, step out. I know everybody can't come to the altar, but you can step.